This is Digital Pathology Today. Now here's your host, Dr. Joseph Anderson. The technology in digital pathology has been with us for some time, but it seems as if we've hit an inflection point and things are accelerating. Perhaps we're even in the midst of a perfect storm. There's a certain sense of inevitability surrounding digital pathology, and it seems like it may be time to open the floodgates and release the promise of digital pathology. Welcome to Digital Pathology Today. I'm Joe Anderson. We're talking with Colin White, Senior Vice President and General Manager of Advanced Staining and Imaging at Leica Biosystems, and Frank Gannon, Professor of Pathology at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Dr. Colin White is an IVD industry veteran with more than 20 years of experience in conceiving, developing, and commercializing systems that advance the practice of pathology. His passion is innovation and motivating teams to develop solutions that advance patient care. And Dr. Frank Gannon has over 25 years experience as a practicing pathologist with subspecialty expertise in orthopedic pathology. Prior to joining Baylor College of Medicine, he spent eight years at the AFIP in orthopedic pathology, two years as chair of the department. Dr. Gannon has co-authored an orthopedic pathology book, numerous book chapters, and over 110 publications in peer-reviewed journals. We're going to be talking about the value proposition of digital pathology. What are challenges to imp implementation? What does digital pathology mean for patient involvement? And we're going to talk about artificial intelligence, machine learning, remote sign-out, remote case sharing, and what going digital means in terms of workflows for the typical pathology department. Colin White from Leica and Dr. Frank, Frank Gannon from Baylor College of Medicine. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Joe. Great to be here. Oh, thank you. Me too. So we've got a lot to talk about today. We're in exciting times in digital pathology. We have a lot of institutions and practices out there amidst a, a digital transformation. One of the key narrative points is what's taking so long? Why hasn't this happened sooner? The technology has been with us for a long time, but of course, it involves much more than the technology. There's human beings and other factors involved. So Colin, you in particular have been outspoken. You say there's a dam, not to be too grandiose, but that's holding back the floodwaters of, of digital pathology. What exactly do you mean by that? What, what's holding us back? Joe, the metaphor of a dam is an apt one. You know, a dam, you know, has two sides. And I think on one side, things that hold back the floodwaters are, are, are very much what we might refer to as the value equation. There's healthcare companies, they're, they're looking for an ROI. So that's part of what holds back digital pathology. Then I think on the other side of the damn wall, there's a lot of operational factors and a lot of operational concerns that they're running a clinical lab, you know, patient volumes increase dramatically, the, the, the flow of information has to meet certain turnaround time expectations and so forth, a certain reliability and a certain uh, usability. And I think as an industry, you know, we've been on the journey to provide the tools and the infrastructure that fits with that environment. Then I think, hopefully not stretching the uh, analogy too far, but I think also the dam is held together by cement. And I think the cement is also important. It, it's perhaps the comfort level of our pathology uh, teams with their with their microscope and recognizing that moving to digital pathology is is a major shift and a, a major change. And I think between operational concerns and value generated concerns, along with change oriented concerns, they're the things that hold it back. But hopefully, as we'll get into today, I think all of those three things are changing, and the damn wall is starting to uh, to crumble. I like how you put that, the cement, because I think that's maybe the most overlooked factor is 
change doesn't happen automatically. And I think for, from the outside looking in, or maybe if you're a technology driver, it's tempting to say, well, obviously, you, should, you guys should just abandon this old way of doing it and go to the new way. The actual doing of the thing with pathologists having a very high comfort level. I mean, they love the microscope. I love the microscope. It's easy. It's fast. People don't appreciate that. You don't even, if you don't use the stage and just zip zap glass across the stage, it's, it's incredibly fast and comfortable and fun and it's not too bad. So <laughs> Dr. Gannon, what do you think? What's holding us back? Yeah, I, I not only agree with Colin, I think he hits the, the high points right on. And I'm going to say this I'm sure as Colin is, that we're going to speak in broad strokes here. So, of course, there are a lot of minute points that people could argue with us about, but I'd like to extend one of Colin's points, and that is focusing on the microscope. The microscope essentially hasn't changed in 450 years. Sure, the lenses have gotten better, the scopes have gotten better, but essentially it's the same. So, for me, what I find in my colleagues... Uh, even at Baylor, is an emotional response. So for us in anatomic pathology, and even in clinical pathology, the, the microscope is our stethoscope. So when you tell people that you're going to take that away, there's a, you know, oh no, we can't do that. And these are the same colleagues that have no problem doing CME online. And, and this is not a judgmental attitude. This is informational. But I find... A lot of pathologists say, sure, it's easy. It's pandemic proof. I can do it at home. That's great. But not using a microscope, that feels very weird. Mm. I could identify with that. So so why now? I kind of feel like we're in the midst of a, a perfect storm. You know, we have a lot of barriers coming down, storage costs, hopefully going down or close to zero, utilizing Moore's Law, our ability, our capacity to store images going up. You know, we got a shot in the arm with COVID-19, global health emergency, so to speak, literally, well, the vaccine you get in the arm, but then also the boost that pathologists have gotten from uh, regulatory considerations uh, were eased in terms of the FDA and CMS and LDTs in terms of validating a, a system for use. So it seems like a lot of factors are coming together at just the right point. So is is the dam about to crumble? Uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, from my point of view, I think the dam is starting to crumble. And I think, as you, as you say, Joe, it's not for any one particular reason. In addition to some of the factors that you've mentioned, I think we've also seen a, a lot of tech firms and a lot of venture-backed firms move into the pathology space, trying to do important things with uh, machine learning and, and artificial intelligence, but also bringing enabling technologies, whether it's 5G or whether it's, as you mentioned, you know, cloud infrastructure and storage costs and transmission costs and, and things like that. So I think as, as well as the healthcare organizations looking through the lens of the pandemic as to how they can still support their patients with social distancing and operating uh, remotely and whatnot, there's also many other companies that bring special skills into the space that maybe have not been traditional players. And what they bring is incredibly valuable into the ecosystem and remove some of those very practical barriers that are required to make the system work. We're at a point now where, number one, the scanners work on a clinically based time frame. It no longer is an hour to scan a slide. You can do 400 slides uh, in several hours. Uh, additionally, the storage space has become a lot easier. So building a digital warehouse for pathology in the petabyte or the multi-petabyte range 
has become feasible uh, and economically sensible. And as Colin mentioned, the, the transmission rate has reached a point where sending gigabyte images is not going to take you a day, day and a half. You can reach out to patients that normally wouldn't get care and provide that care, which I just find is the bright hope for the future. It is a bright future, we're hoping. We're throwing around terms which we never which we never even knew about in terms of storage size, you know, a few years ago. Ter- terabytes, I don't even know, I don't even know all of the prefixes, but, and Colin, you alluded to, you know, the value proposition a few minutes ago, and I think the technology's been with us, and I think it hasn't moved, the, nothing has moved the needle, right? You could say, I kind of called these secondary benefits, like, well, I can look at the case on my screen instead of a microscope, or I can share the case with a colleague. I don't have to FedEx a slide, or we don't have to have lab assistants walking, trudging through the hallways with their little carts, pushing glass slides, you know, which is nice, but it didn't really move the needle in terms of an economic argument or a value proposition. And someone might say, well, that's nice and all for you, but the patient's getting the same report. And it's actually expensive to buy one of these scanners, and it actually it may add turnaround time. So those those secondary arguments didn't really move the needle. But now, what do we have to offer in terms of a value proposition? I think what you say is eminently right. Looking looking through history, that digital pathology has found its niche in the in the research market, and what we might refer to as special projects could be an archiving project or, or something something of that nature. But I think that the, the promise of digital pathology is starting to reveal itself a little bit in core metrics associated with, you know, running a lab, you know, things like productivity. And, you know, if you look into places like the core lab and the clinical chemistry lab and, and so forth, the way that they operate digitally is, is very different than in anatomical pathology. Typically, cl- clinical chemistry, you're dealing with numbers and there'd be normal ranges for things and uh, it would all be done digitally where a patient sample would be processed and then things that were out of range uh, would be called out, allowing you know triaging of cases and, and places where a pathologist might go first in, in terms of looking at things that are not right. And you could imagine how that could create enormous value in, in anatomical pathology. We certainly see that, thankfully, most samples that come into an anatomical pathology lab, are, they're not cancerous samples. The cells are relatively normal. And you, you could imagine a future where slides are scanned, that once they're in the digital realm, it's then very easy to look and, and see whether or not there is tumor there. And if there, if there is tumor there, then obviously that can be flagged. But if there's not tumor there, then those samples can also be identified as uh, not tumorous and maybe uh, less pathology time would be spent on those samples. And, and I think it's those productivity improvements from digital that are part of the promise of the future value proposition. I would also say that some of the things that you've mentioned there as maybe secondary or soft factors are also incredibly important. The ability to manage cases flexibly, we've, we've talked a little bit about telepathology, the ability to, to trigger secondary consults and to be able to access expertise. Frank mentioned patient access, that once you're in the digital realm, I mean, the ability to tap into to broader networks and to move things around and to get what is required to the best standard of patient care, I think is a very important element of the value proposition as well. I, I would also say there's, there's a trend that, that we're seeing, which is around what I might call transparency, the rise of the patient and patient advocates that they want to be involved in their own healthcare. They're the kind of the 
if you like, the stewards of their own body. They want to be involved in their case. They want to understand what's going on. And I think when you're in the digital realm, then there's a clear value proposition to, to patients that also can be re- realized in some future state. You know, I'd like to follow on on that because there were several great ideas to further unpack that Colin mentioned. I think the first uh, that he he alluded to is operationally. Baylor College of Medicine is part of the Texas Medical Center, which is the largest medical center uh, in the world. And our pathology practice, I oversee 43 pathologists, and our sites cover 190,000 square miles of Texas. So what that means for us is we have over 100 pathologists in the department in Houston with varying levels of expertise. So if someone in an outlying location wants to send in a consult, by the time it reaches us and wends its way through accessioning, it could be two or three days. With digital pathology, we are already in the practice of reducing that to two or three hours, which, as Colin mentioned, enables patients and their physicians to get quicker access to therapeutics that might take several weeks. And for me, what's really exciting about this is for a treating physician to be able to show a patient, this is what the cancer looks like, or this is what your infection looks like. The patients become more involved in their treatment regimens, uh, are better able to understand, and there's no more, you know, man behind the curtain, I don't understand what's going on with me, and better informed patients that are able to help in their decision-making is something that we all look forward to. I'm trying to think of a joke in regards to the size of Texas, because that certainly is a very big geography. Well, to put it into perspective, so we cover 190,000 square miles. The entire state of South Dakota is only 170,000 square miles. So that's that's what we're talking about. And I don't know what it would be in Australia. <laughs> so... I think we've got you covered. And I certainly think also that we're seeing in places like China, what I might refer to as the Texas dynamic or the Texas model, where it's a very large country and yet pathology capability tends to be concentrated in uh, you know, in certain large cities. And so digital pathology really offers the value proposition of providing the best that science and the best that medicine can offer but without necessarily that physical presence. And I think as, uh, as healthcare promulgates places like China and also Australia, for that matter, digital will be part of those solutions in, in a major way. Yeah, you two both uh, alluded to something involving patient involvement, which is something we often may not think about or and also made a reference to the Wizard of Oz, the man behind the curtain or the pathologist, the, the doctor's doctor working behind the scenes. And I think you know, this could open up whole new avenues, which maybe a few years ago we weren't even thinking about, where a pathology report used to be a piece of paper, right? Now images are digitized, so those images are stored in a cloud or on servers. They can be shared, can be interaction, both the, the, uh, the treating physician, but then also the patient. And then also, I think some really new things are emerging just in the last couple of years, which we didn't even, weren't even on our radar. And, so, and also, 
in that vein, uh, artificial intelligence, really this whole new area that's op opening up, or so we hear. What is this going to mean in terms of the value proposition for digital pathology, AI applications? AI, and, and closely aligned with that, the whole space of machine learning is incredibly exciting. In anatomical pathology, there are many innovation vectors that offer the potential for significantly shifting the needle in terms of understanding biology and uh, you know linking together therapies with particular uh, attributes within that biology. But I do think that biology itself is, is very complicated. And, and certainly what we've seen is that computer vision, machine learning, pattern recognition, these type of things can reproducibly, reliably, and with a very strong kind of grounding in the reality of, of, of linking samples with outcomes, support the pathologist and, and provide a level of insight that could be faster and more reproducible and so forth and perhaps has been uh, been possible in the past and uh, i personally think that it's going to be a revolution and 10 years time five to ten years time you know that ai will be routine will be supporting the, the pathologist to bring together very uh you know complicated you know perspectives on on the biology and the pieces of the diagnostic jigsaw puzzle to be able to do the best thing possible for the patient I agree with that. And one of the things that I'm looking forward to is analogous to immunohistochemistry. So for an example, in breast cancer, most of your audience, Joe, is going to understand that ER, PR, and HER2 new staining is incredibly important in breast cancers to stratify treatment options. That's how I am viewing artificial intelligence, as Colin mentioned. I think there's going to be an adjunct that will stratify patients who may benefit from different treatments or progressive treatments. And so it'll be another weapon in our armamentarium to provide better diagnostic services to our clinical and treating colleagues. I completely agree. I think one of our previous guests said, well, now the diagnosis will be the starting point and really we have the challenge how can we add more and how can we seek to add more and more value in terms of prediction and prognosis how should the patient be treated which drugs according to which timeline which protocols sh should they follow i think it's an, an incredible opportunity for us to add value so these so but ai seems to just come on the radar you know very recently and everyone's excited about it all of a sudden it seems and so, but what about, you know, in the, in the business literature, there's a book called The Innovator's Dilemma, Clay Christensen. Yeah, exactly. And his thesis is that disruptive innovation isn't necessarily what you think it is. It's not like this miracle new breakthrough that drops down from the heavens. More realistically, it's the low end things that become incrementally better over time, right? Where they, when they first came out, they weren't acceptable for use. He uses the analogy, I think, of Japanese economy cars, like Honda in the early 70s, which were a piece of junk at first, but then they got increasingly better to the extent that they were better than American luxury cars. You talk about maturing technologies, Colin. So is there anything in digital pathology where we're seeing just incremental improvement such that it's going to move the needle now, but maybe when we started off, it just wasn't there yet? There's many different things in, in that realm. I, I do think that you know, one piece that we often forget about as a barrier to implementation of, of all this is the digital, what you might refer to as the digital backbone or the, the IT backbone. And, you know, the, the notion that, that one day, you know, an, an organization is going to suddenly embrace AI, in my mind, is a false one. It's absolutely a, a journey to get there. If you're not 
operating in the digital realm if you if you don't have the pathology team lined up with a you know a, a viewing experience if you don't have the IT infrastructure and the scanning infrastructure to be able to generate move around annotate report on share etc all those images then the ability to participate in that AI revolution is, is a bridge too far because that foundation is is necessary and so I think a lot of the innovators dilemma if you like is being resolved in that infrastructure piece we're seeing movement in things like open file standards you know if you like pdf type equivalent for uh, for slide images to allow different vendors and and people who form different part of the kind of hospital it ecosystem to coexist and to be able to share things around and to be able to leverage enterprise solutions and, and infrastructure and things of that nature to be able to you know share things to uh, an existing tumor board system and what have you so i think in that area that's definitely one area where we're seeing all the time incremental improvement in the capability of it setups the security of it setups the interoperability around it setups and therefore the benefits that come from all of that in terms of leverage and and, and sharing and, and usability and so forth so that's one area that I, I would identify i think the other area that i would also touch on is that i think comes back to what i was saying before that I think for you know 20 years or, or more, there's always been AI algorithms to help pathologists as aids to be able to determine cell phenotypes or to be able to identify tumorous sections of, of a slide and, and what have you. And I think all those tools that come together just getting better and better and more reliable, uh, you know, all the time. And I think you know there was a there was a major watershed in in that recent times where the FDA, of course, have now cleared, you know, certain solutions for use in, in a clinical environment. And that's only in the last couple of years. So I think, I think there's, you know, the thing with digital pathology, it's a very complicated set of technologies and, and infrastructures and the stakeholders involved, the, the social system, if you like, is, is very, very large. But uh, across all fronts, there is progress that is being made. I'd like to follow on on that by sort of flipping back from AI to just using uh, digital pathology by the pathologist, because as we alluded to earlier, we started implementing digital pathology service as a response. We had started well before the COVID lockdowns had happened, but this it, it allowed our pathologists to be active and to keep interaction, personal interaction to a minimum. But coupled with that, we found it a surprisingly powerful adjunct to resident teaching. And we're aiming very shortly to moving to a fully digital training model so that we're not bound by uh, geography or even time zones for people that need certain accommodations. It can be a, a powerful new way to organize how patient care is done. Yeah, the dam cer certainly is opening up. So where are we now? Uh, so Dr. Gannon, you alluded to developing or implementing the digital pathology practice, and I'm sure that was a journey unto, unto itself. I think it becomes even more and more interesting when we talk about training residents and, and young physicians. So first, maybe uh, Colin, tell us, maybe the, give us the global landscape of digital pathology. I think in Europe, they seem to be a little bit far ahead of us and in other parts of the world, US, you know, we hear adoption is around five to 10% or so. Just kind of give us the landscape and then Dr. Gannon, let's talk about your 
program specifically, you know, what you've, what you've done so far and, and what your future vision looks like? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Europe, you say it's ahead. It may be in terms of utility in clinical practice in some ways, and, and that's historically, I think, been because of the different regulations that would apply in Europe, you know, vis-a-vis the US. But, uh, but with the advent of IVDR in Europe, which, which comes in uh, next year, you know, I, I think the US has, a, you know, has terrific momentum and pioneers and, and visionaries, you know, like Frank, you know, are uh, a part of that process. And I, I expect that the, the US will be well ahead of Europe in the coming years. I think the other really exciting place globally for me is, is, is absolutely China. China's needs, the the scale of the population and the government's kind of policy and mandate to invest in the health care of their people is hard to question. And and certainly as they set up infrastructure in some of the more far-flung regions of China, digital pathology is playing a, a significant role there. So I think you know, the US clearly there's strong momentum. You know, Europe is sort of wrestling to ground, I think, how it's going to participate with some of the regulation changes and, and China, you know, continues, you know, very, very strongly at pace. And then I think other countries like India and, and so forth, where there's different set of challenges and, you know, probably uh, less um, infrastructure to support some of the backbone that's required, probably a, a yet to, um, you know, yet to accelerate off the, off the launch pad. But, but it, it's exciting. And, you know, the, the things that are happening in the US, and I think the innovation that is happening in the US is, you know, is, is, is a place to watch very carefully. Colin mentioned something uh, in his previous answer about uh, information technology. And for us, that's where we decided to start, which may seem a little atypical that pathologists in general want to start with the diagnostic capabilities, which are very strong. But the analogy that I use, it's equivalent to building a stadium. A lot of people want to donate money. It's a very sexy proposition to build a new stadium. But if you don't have the roads and the plumbing, it's just a big expensive building sitting there. So we started with IT, our IT infrastructure at Baylor College of Medicine and transformed the way that we implement IT connections, IT transference, bandwidth, etc. And that's allowed us to move forward to the point that by the new year, 2022, we fully will be a digital anatomic pathology service, uh, including hematology. And I know that people like Dr. Parwani at the Ohio State uh, were some of the trailblazers in this, but from a decentralized model, we see incredible power in this to be able to provide quality patient care over vast distances. You know, one size certainly does not fit all, and there's a vast variety of practice settings, including, you know, your vast geography, which I'm sure has completely different considerations than a single site institution or other settings. And also, as you highlighted, there's different subdomains in pathology, some of which are easier to digitize and scan and have other considerations. Not only do we have histology, we have cytology, we have hematology, where the preparations are different and tissue processing is different. So it's <laughs> it's definitely not a, a, a one-size-fits-all uh, solution that we're going to get. It sounds like the barriers are coming down, though. So let's you know maybe talk about a few of them. One concern we keep hearing about is lack of interoperability or lack of a consensus of uh, uniform file standards. 
How big of an obstacle is that? And where do we stand on that now, Colin? Yes, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. It, it is an obstacle and it ties in very closely with the value equation and getting a, a return on investment. And it shows up as a barrier where, you know, hospitals have certain commitments to enterprise level IT solutions for, for different activities. And if a digital pathology solution can't operate with that interoperably, there's further investment required in duplication of capability and so forth, which is normally a barrier. So I think it's recognized, it's well recognized as a problem. And I think the industry as a whole is taking steps to try to mitigate that barrier. There's working groups. Many of your listeners probably have heard of DICOM as the open file sharing format, you know, and I think many of the issues around a DICOM standard for digital pathology are resolved. There's still some ongoing discussions about what's known as, as metadata and what is the data that travels with the image in order for that image to be completely useful for every use case that one might imagine either today or, or in the future. But, but we've certainly seen in the last year some hospitals move to DICOM and to use DICOM as a file format for some of the things that Frank was talking about initially in terms of preparation of teaching cases and, and, and so forth, and certainly doing their own work to try and you know get comfort that what they see in the scope is the same as what they would see in other file formats and, and also in DICOM file formats. But my expectation is that in the shorter term, you know, measured in quarters to a year or two, that we'd see all issues associated with that interoperability question and that file format question, you know, largely resolved. I think Colin raises uh, two large points that we're going to have to address. The first is in terms of file format. If I receive a case that is difficult and I need to send it to another institution, what form do I need to send it in? Uh, because there are a lot of proprietary formats that may not be available to other practitioners uh, to open up. The second thing I think is critical with respect to the metadata, because then we engage HIPAA quality, like how is that going to be stripped on the other end? Uh, how can we ensure that a digital image that's transferred for diagnostic purposes is either deleted or scrubbed or somehow we're not running afoul of transmitting patient data in a way that runs afoul, at least of the U.S., regulations. But uh, I also know from looking at Africa, if you're going to perform uh, consultative things, you can't store the images locally because of uh, issues with misuse. So I think there's some really interesting philosophical uh, and ethical questions to be raised that may not be readily apparent. Mm. Yes. So let's talk about regulatory considerations. So Colin, you mentioned, the, I believe the two major scanning platforms are two of the major ones. There's obviously others, but Leica and uh, Philips, I believe, got FDA clearance around 2017 or so for use in primary diagnosis. I mean, we could probably devote another show to actually what <laughs> what that means. But anyway, it was, you know, people perceived that as a major landmark or barriers coming down. And then we saw an ease of those FDA oversight and then uh, CMS regulations around LDT systems amidst the pandemic. You know, how big of a deal was that getting FDA clearance? And then how do you approach, you know, on an ongoing basis regulation? Is this, you know, a barrier to overcome or are these bodies that we can work with and partner with and show them the great things we're developing so that we can more readily bring these great tools to market? What's your approach there? It's a great question. And I think my own perspective would be that the 
discretionary enforcement that you mentioned, you know, if I, if I think about the American situation exclusively as, as kind of reviewed, you know, real world data and said that during the, the health emergency, the benefit of digital pathology solutions exceeds the patient risk and therefore they're going to exercise their, you know, sort of enforcement discretion, if you like, to allow research labelled tools, um, scanners and, and software to be used for clinical purposes. And, and, and that enforcement discretion, of course, applies to the manufacturers, practitioners like Frank and so forth. They've always been able to, as you say, bring in whatever they think is useful to the practice of medicine, call it an LDT, if you want, I think maybe that's a helpful label here, but to be able to set up their practice in the way that makes sense for them to be able to meet their patient needs. But for manufacturers, we're not really able to support practitioners using research and other, you know, non-IVD labeled devices in clinical practice. So, so I think the pandemic has allowed, you know, manufacturers and, and people providing solutions to operate in a, a more fulsome way to support their customers in that those use modes. However, my sense of it is, and I, and I think this is generally the industry sense, that the discretionary enforcement is temporary. At some point, hopefully soon, pandemic subsides and uh, you know we're moving into a different place. And so the discretionary enforcement would then be removed. And certainly in our discussion with regulating bodies, that's the approach that they take. And certainly when talking with many customers, they are very nervous about the timing of that and so forth. And so for me, it doesn't really change anything. The clearances and, and the claims that would be made and the review of those claims against the data, primary diagnosis, I understand the ambiguity that that term might invoke. Those things will still be required, absolutely required, whether they're required this year or, or next year you know, really comes down to the removal of that enforcement discretion. But in terms of, you know, how the industry respond, the industry should absolutely continue to believe that the regulations that are on foot before the pandemic will absolutely be on foot after the pandemic. And, you know, we need to be investing in the right level of validation and statistical power and clinical work to support the claims that we would we would want to make. And I agree with both of the major points that, that Colin raised there. Uh, number one, we're on a path very similar to what radiology went through uh, when they went fully digital. Um, I think part of the difficulty that uh, pathology faces, and, and we've seen this uh, ourselves, is that when we approach Congress, most people understand what radiology is. Very few people understand what pathologists do. So we have a lot more explanation and we have to find more creative ways to describe our case uh, for the regulators. Secondly, Colin mentioned that people like Baylor College of Medicine, Ohio State, Mayo Clinic, whoever it is, need to be intimately interacting with industries such as Lyco Biosystems to have that conversation going back and forth to make the case that this is as safe and efficacious and more so than we've done for the last 400 years. It's mm, a long time. <laughs> so let's bring it back full circle. One of the first things we talked about was the cement in the dam, the pathologist resistance. How do we overcome that? And let's drill down maybe a little bit on that resistance itself. There may be a perception that it could be an age-related thing, or it could be kind of a risk, the risk profile with any technology. You have your early adopters and then your laggards and then somewhere, and then you have probably the majority of people that fall fall in the middle. So you know, my sense is that it, this has nothing to do with age. You can see old pathologists who are very, very willing to adopt the technology and even young people who are very hesitant. How do we get around that? You know, how do we make pathologists feel comfortable with these new technologies? Colin, if you don't mind me jumping in here, 
I'm close to being 58, and I've been a huge uh, proponent of this. And what the argument that I've been using is that, uh, you know, most of us do our continuing medical education through the College of American Pathology portal. Leica is the one that scans those images. And the conversations usually go, well, oh, I love that. It's easy. It works well. Uh, and so people are accustomed to using it for CME, but there's that slight barrier to say, well, clinical practice is different. And I think it's a thing of exposure. And in our group, we've slowly introduced everybody a little bit at a time. And those that have been resistant in the beginning, that start the workflow and start to realize uh, how very easy and comfortable it is. And you can annotate something and send it to another pathologist. Uh, there's no more three green dots on a slide to say, the area I want you to look at is in this general vicinity. You can actually point right to the area. And once people understand that, there's generally the barriers come down. Yeah, that's great. Colin, what do you think in your experience? There's a kind of a rational part to it and there's a, there's an emotional part. Frank has spoken to, to both of those well. I think from my side, it, it's very hard to, you know, un, uh, understand and, and, and address the emotional part, not being a pathologist, but certainly from the point of view of trying to make that user, I mean, to me, the key is that the user experience is an engaging one and it's a high-end one, it's a smooth one, and, and certainly making sure that the pathologists, all of whom, you know, in clinical practice seem to me to be under enormous pressure to get cases through, volumes are increasing, and it's so important that the digital solutions, you know, recognize that and that they're reliable, uh, intuitive, fast. Uh, and so these are the sort of things that I spend my time working more on rather than on the uh, emotional side. But I think the, uh, I think we've made tremendous progress there, but we still have some, some ways to go to provide everything that would be required to just provide that absolutely elite experience so that there's no, no barrier from that, that usability perspective. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Maybe each of you tell us what excites you. Where do you see the field headed in the next 10 years or so? Colin. The excitement comes to me from thinking about patients. I, I mean, I'm, I'm of a similar vintage to Frank and, you know, unfortunately, know many people who have gone through the cancer experience, some who've come out the other side, some of, you know, who, who, who have not. You know, when I think about what pathologists do and the role of diagnostics in setting a pathway for patient care, I'm just so privileged to be involved and so excited to think about how we can support these this tremendous profession to bring together, you know, the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle to uh, to figure out what's happening within a, an individual patient's biology and and to do the best thing for them. And so the 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 artificial intelligence and the machine learning and potential there to impact uh, life outlook and, and life expectancy, I, I, I guess it's, it's a privilege to be involved in something which, uh, you know, motivates me on a daily basis. And I would agree with that. And, and I would extend it to say for me, um, as a physician, I'm looking forward to patients that can be more informed uh, and active uh, in, in with their physicians and understanding why it is I have to undergo this surgery or this chemotherapy and what it looks like. But importantly, I worked with a young woman yesterday who just graduated from college, and she said, I didn't even know pathology was a thing. And so getting that, I know, getting that, I hear that a lot, getting that information out there may, may attract high-quality, intelligent people to the field and lead to eventually better treatments and better patient care. So 
I'm hoping that digital pathology will allow for that. It's a great time to be a pathologist, and I think all the forces are kind of co- coalescing, not the least of which is you know social media, podcasts such as this, where we can really you know share with people our stories. And ultimately, I think this is going to result for better, better care for patients. Well, thank you uh, both. Our guests have been uh, Colin White from Leica and Dr. Frank Gannon from Baylor College of Medicine. We'll see you next time on Digital Pathology Today. This has been Digital Pathology Today. Please be sure to subscribe. Thanks for listening.